How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to continue my conversation with renowned biographer Flora Fraser as we discuss her book, Flora MacDonald, Pretty Young Rebel. So thank you for uh, the earlier conversation about Flora MacDonald. As we left it, she is now married back to her native Scotland, living in Skye. At what age did she get married? Uh, She got married late 20s. It would have been usual to have married earlier, even in her teens. But between uh, when she was taken prisoner when she was 24 and when she marries that period of when she comes back from being prisoner in London she's engaged in telling her story in Edinburgh to historians of the time she's learning to read and write better she uses the money so that in a sense she uh, sort of engages in a sort of business correspondence course with a writing master in Edinburgh. But the man she marries is the very dashing figure of a Highlander, Alan MacDonald, son of MacDonald of Slate Estate Factor on Sky. And um, he was a very, I mean, he was should have been a very good bet in that he had been educated by the clan chief down in Edinburgh, which, I mean, Edinburgh, Aberdeen and Glasgow all had ancient universities. So people were sent there on the whole for education. And he was educated to succeed his father as factor, which indeed he did. But the problem with Alan, handsome as he was and well-meaning as he was, Money just dripped through his fingers. And over the course of 20 years, he has more or less bankrupted his and Flora's family. And he's been let go as a state factor because he's not the capable man his father was. Now, her name before she got married was Flora McDonald. Mm-hmm. And she married a man who last name was McDonald. So she obviously loves that name. Um, is everybody named McDonald? Because a lot of people in this book are McDonald's. Well, the Western Isles and Sky, I think it's fair to say that if they're not a McDonald of different branches of the clan, they're a McLeod. And um, just to Jazz things up. She does acquire a McLeod son-in-law. But yes, otherwise, I'm afraid they're all McDonald's. 
Okay. So um, her husband, who's, uh, is he a bit older than her? No, they're actually the the same age. About the same age. Okay. So he's not uh, a great business person. No. Basically loses his job. But in those days, when you don't really know what to do, you say, let's go to the new world because we can have a whole new life. And let's go over to the colonies and make a life all over again. Is that what they basically said? Yes. Uh, in the early 1770s, so, you know, in the really those very few years before the revolution breaks out in America, there's this wholesale emigration from the West Coast and the islands of, of Scotland. And the reason for that is government legislation has it's been biting and squeezing the highlands in numerous ways but there's also been a a move by clan chiefs to go south not just stay in edinburgh go to university but actually to go south to london and then they're sending to their factors back home and say, oh, we need more money. And the factors say, oh, right. And then they put up the rents of these long leases. And along with Alan, who is a bad manager, there are plenty of other tenant farmers who are good managers but can't manage at all okay. with the, with this, this rent. And what they want above all is to go and own their own property in the new world. So what age do they go over? What age are they? They're in their late 40s or? Early 50s. Early 50s. Okay. At that point, are there seven children grown and out of the house or do they take them with them? Um. So effectively five come to North Carolina with them. And one, the most promising son, there are five sons, two daughters, stays in Edinburgh at the high school with the aim that he's going to train as a lawyer after. And the younger daughter is left in the Highlands. I assume they think she's just too young to bring. Okay. So uh, there's nothing wrong with North Carolina. I went to college in North Carolina, but some people might say, why not go to Boston or Philadelphia or New York, big cities? Why did they go to North Carolina, which was very rural at the time? Indeed. And they not only went to this wholesale immigration to North Carolina, but they all went to this same settlement, which was then called Cross Creek and is now Fayetteville, way up the Cape Fear River. And the reason for that is the uh, longleaf pine of North Carolina, to go natural history for a sec, um, provided tar and pitch for the Royal Navy's ropes and hulls. So, you know, there was ready-made business there. And if you weren't going to, you know, be in that producing the tar, you could be in the lumber. And also you could have the cattle, which was what everyone in the Highlands, that was their source of income. They bred cattle. And so you could have that too. And this entirely Scottish town when Florence, well, she might be in her 50s, but she was probably the most famous Scot of her day. And when she appeared with her husband, I mean, there was 
sort of rejoicing um, to have her in their midst, not least because Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson, had just published an account of his Highland tour with Boswell when they went to the Hebrides. And Samuel Johnson's account of staying the night with Flora and her husband and sleeping in the bed in which Bonnie Prince Charlie had slept, all of this created still more appetite among the Scots in Cross Creek for sort of relishing the arrival of this Scottish celebrity. But uh, her husband wasn't any more successful as a farmer in the colonies than he was as a businessman in Scotland. Is that right? So he basically is not that successful. I'm afraid, yeah. Although they have such a short time before the revolution breaks out to make a success, they buy um, a steading or a you know a small plantation outside Cross Creek, and they probably brought with them as farm hands and as cattle hands and as domestic servants. They probably brought indentured servants, i.e. cottagers from Skye who want to emigrate but couldn't afford the fare, or they may have got entered into an indenture in North Carolina. But it's noticeable that the Scots in Cross Creek uh, do not, by and large, have enslaved workers. It's very much they, they want to be all Scots together. Okay, so when they come over, they're loyal citizens of the uh, United Kingdom, you could say. Yeah. And most of the people in the colonies are loyal citizens of the United Kingdom. They may not have been born there the way Laura MacDonald and her husband were, but they're loyal citizens. So as the revolution begins to pick up uh, steam and actually breaks out, what side does Flora MacDonald and her husband take? Do they say we are citizens uh, loyal to King George or we're basically Americans now and we don't really care about King George? They're courted by both sides. The patriots come and particularly want Flora's son-in-law, who's an experienced Marine officer of 23 years standing. They want Alexander MacLeod to join their side, if you like. It's such early days. And Floris has gone to great lengths to have her numerous patrons in the UK provide positions in the Marines, the Bengal Army, etc., for her sons. And one of those, um, Ranald MacDonald, is in the Marines and is wounded at the skirmishes of Lexington and Concord which I still find quite extraordinary, that Flora, who I knew entirely as a Jacobite heroine of the 1740s in Scotland, 30 years later has a son who is Lieutenant Ranald MacDonald of the Marines, who's there in those running battles with the Patriots and is later at Bunker Hill. So I think the fact that already she's signed up her sons for positions uh, we're now obviously in George III's reign, have been since 1760. Um, I think they can't imagine that these patriots who 
they don't really know the patriots in North Carolina because often they're the wealthy ones in Wilmington on the coast or New Bern. And they're flattered, Flora and Alan and her son-in-law, by the governor, young Josiah Martin, writing and saying, I want you to mount um, a Highland militia to come down and uh, fight these beastly patriots. And they had just hadn't been long enough, I mean, months rather than years, to have any understanding of the issues, of the injustices. And they couldn't also believe that the British army, who had been triumphant against the French, Spanish in the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian Wars, this was the mightiest military force. How, how could these rebels succeed? So they wanted, Flora wanted economic stability. That's why they had left Scotland. So they went with the crown, which they strongly believed would supply this. And then they were they found out they were much mistaken. So were they um, attacked by the Patriots? Uh, what happened to her husband? Was he fighting in the war and did he get captured? What happened to him? So this Highland army does form up in Cross Creek. And according to legend, Flora rides along the ranks, urging them on. And they march down towards the coast and the governor, Josiah Martin, the, the North Carolina royal governor, has arranged for ships to come from British New York with arms and ammunition for these Highlanders because they've got the arms they brought. They weren't allowed to bear arms after the Jacobite rebellion. So, but of course they hid arms, but they're all, you know, rusty old claymores. And so they need these modern muskets. And the Patriots surprised them at the Battle of, well, it became known as the Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge. And so they're close to the coast. And this militia absolutely makes mincemeat of them. This bridge, the Patriots, they grease it, they remove planks from it. So when these, this actually it's the last Highland charge, not in Scotland, but in North Carolina, they slip, they, they're into this creek and 500 of them, really all the force are taken prisoner apart from a few who managed to escape. And Flora's husband, who's one of the captains, is sent out of the colony to Philadelphia so that they can't foment further trouble in North Carolina. And Flora's left at this steading with her daughter, who's Annie McLeod, who has three children pregnant with the fourth. And they're really prey, not to the patriots. It's just what Flora describes in a, a, a memoir she later writes as night robbers. So I suppose you, well, here we'd call them burglars who just come and take everything. They take horses, they take cattle, they take any silver. And after two years, Alan, her husband, one of 
their sons, they're transferred from the jail in Philadelphia out to lodgings in Reading, Pennsylvania. And eventually they're exchanged for continental officers. And Alan comes to to New York, British New York, as it is. And Flora's son-in-law, who's has always had money, he's an illegitimate son, but a favoured son of uh, the MacLeod on Skype, the head of the clan MacLeod. And he sends for Flora a ship, I, I'm, you know, a merchant vessel for Flora and, and for his wife, Flora's daughter, and they come up to New York. But it's still carrying on. So now there are four of Flora's sons, all fighting in different loyalist regiments in different parts of America. And although two survive, two don't survive the war and are both lost at sea. At some point, uh, she decides, I've had enough of uh, the colonies, the United States, whatever you want to call it then. And she decides to go back to Scotland. Is that right? Yes. Her Alan is having rather a good time in New York, and he's fitted out a volunteer militia in what I can only imagine are very expensive jackets of, of red and blue. But the Highland Emigrant Regiment he's attached to in Halifax, Nova Scotia, says, either come or you'll lose. You know, I'm not providing any more back pay. So Flora goes with him for one winter, and yes, has had enough. She's developing really bad rheumatism. She's had a very bad fall off a horse. And she comes back to Skye, and by great good luck, her son-in-law and her daughter are now taking care of Dunvegan Castle, the MacLeod clan residence. And so the chief is fighting for the crown in, in India. And so, you know, she doesn't land on her feet. She's distressed. She's lost two sons. Uh, I mean, they've lost their home. They've got no money. Um, but she's got a, a comfortable billet, if you like. And Alan comes home after the war. And like many loyalists who've fought for the crown in the United States, um, or now the United States, he puts in a claim for what the the land, the cattle, the, everything that they've lost, and gets, as it were, a penny in the pound. And thank heavens for Johnny, that's the youngest son we left in Edinburgh at the high school, because he decided not to become a lawyer. He went out east uh, to Bengal, becomes a a distinguished artillery officer and sends back for Flora an annual pension. And this keeps her going in her last years, but he sends it to Flora and not to his father. The King of England, uh, does he provide any pension as well? Yes. Yes. The future George IV, who is in a sense, the first Hanoverian, he sees the, how advantageous it can be to marry the romance and majesty of Stuart kingship with 
the current Hanoverian dynasty and in a, in a sense enrich this dynasty, give it stronger roots in the United Kingdom. And he's moved by the story. He hears one of his intimates is the son of a clergyman, a minister on Sky, and he sends Flora a pension of £50 a year in her last, which is amazing. I mean, because in a sense, there are so many people in Flora's story who sort of recognise each other. Samuel Johnson, a giant of 18th century literature and learning, and Flora, when they meet, uh, Boswell describes how wonderfully they get on. And 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 now there's the future George IV recognising, in a sense, Flora's place in history, although she obviously helped a prince of the rival um, and deposed dynasty. And she dies at the age of 68 in 1790, on Sky, her husband doesn't long succeed her. But ever since the moment, in a sense, that the prince came to find her in this bothy or hut on the hill in the Hebrides, her life has been so public and it's as though that week with the prince continues to inform her life. She definitely uses it as leverage when she wants patronage for her children. She reminds people of sometimes of her loyalty to the Stuart cause, sometimes of her loyalty in America to the Hanoverian crown. And her funeral is, um, you know, one of those high funerals where I would imagine everyone was drunk for days, if not weeks afterwards. And her her grave in Kilmuir Cemetery on Sky has inscribed on it a tribute that Samuel Johnson uh, paid to her in this journey to the Western Isles that he published. And she could have lived unknown in these far-flung Hebridean islands if the prince had never come. And yes, she was a prisoner, but being a prisoner in a sense was the making of her because then everyone could admire her character. So have you thought, had she not spent that one week helping the prince, you would have a different first name? Do you know what, David? I had never thought of that before. Oh, my goodness. So after... You've now spent many years, seven years, working on this book, research and writing it. Did you uh, emerge from it admiring her much more than you had before? Or do you say, well, now I know some of her flaws and maybe she wasn't as great as I thought? I admire her far more because growing up, you know, with Jacobite history all about me in Scotland, I never stop to ask when she says to Samuel Johnson and Boswell when they come on this tour in 1773, she says, you were lucky to catch me. I'm off to America. And it never occurred to me, although I must have read, you know, both their accounts of this island tour several, several times, 
to wonder, well, where was she going and why was she going? And her powers of endurance and, in a sense, the way that she negotiated civil war on both sides of the Atlantic, I think make her truly remarkable. And I would never have ever have written about her or come back to her, if you like, this very potent character of my youth, if I hadn't been sitting in the Washington Library at Mount Vernon, a place I think you know well, David, and I have attended many interesting talks in the David Rubenstein Leadership Hall. Um, But I was sitting there looking through images to illustrate my book on the Washingtons. And in among among all these engravings of Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, Abigail Adams, Martha, I found a 1746 engraving of Flora MacDonald, which I knew well. And I thought, what's Flora MacDonald of the Highlands in George II's reign doing with these revolutionaries? And um, Mount Vernon and the library were kind enough to give me a Mount Vernon Georgian Papers Fellowship, which allowed me to work for two months research in the Royal Archives among the Duke of Cumberland's papers and spend a month in the Washington Library. And um, like so many in America and elsewhere, I owe a great deal to the uh, librarians um, in the the Washington Library and the curators at Mount Vernon. Well, uh, this has been an extremely interesting conversation. We talked about how you got your name and how if it hadn't been for her, you might have a different name. We've learned a lot about the incredible Flora McDonald, and I want to thank you for a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Pleasure. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.